memories made our pastor to lead us the altar to pray stripes that can heal and the blood that can save oh I have been blessed oh I have been blessed God's so good to me precious are you on earth well our flag stands for freedom and all it is worth she stands in the harbor miss liberty calls all have given some oh but some gave it all for me to be
Well, you're glad to be in God's house. Say amen. amen. I appreciate the spirit of the Lord as I came in tonight and I just walked into the, uh, the sobriety of prayer. And that is certainly on my heart these days. I appreciate the burden of this church. And I'm so glad that you're here tonight. And so where churches across America and ministries are shutting down, I'm grateful to know that there is a remnant of folks that want to seek the face of God for revival. How many knows that the hope of our nation is if the church of Jesus Christ is revived? And so I'm so grateful tonight. I trust that you're doing well. It's an honor for me to be here. Uh, We've got some of our members that are here tonight. My son's with us. And I'm so grateful that you're here. I want to invite you to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of Nehemiah chapter number 1. Nehemiah chapter number 1. And so it is the uh, responsibility uh, tonight for me to uh, hasten and get us to a place of prayer. And and I want to do that with the Word of God. And and certainly um, the Lord's put a, a thought on my heart for these series of meetings tonight and uh, the rest of the week and and it is on the subject of prayer. I appreciate your pastor so very much and I thank God for his uh, humility and his desire to seek God in these days and we've talked about um, and prayed about what the Lord would have for us in these days of meetings and my heart has been drifted toward the book of Nehemiah. We have studied a little bit in this great text at our own church over the last few weeks. And I've just felt compelled tonight uh, just to take a few minutes of your time and somewhat do a a preface, if you will, to these services. Just somewhat of an introduction what's weighing on my heart from Nehemiah. Of course, we all understand to some extent what is going on. Nehemiah is a cupbearer of King Artaxerxes in Shushan the palace. He's in Persia. And uh, he has heard of a report of what's happening in Jerusalem. And I want to pick up there in the text in verse number 4. Nehemiah chapter number 1, verse number 4. The Bible says, And it came to pass when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days, and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive, and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I And my father's house have sinned. Sober words tonight from a man thousands of years ago, but yet there it is before us in the text this evening. I want to just speak very quickly tonight on this subject from these two verses. Revival begins with me. Revival begins with me. Would you just do me the favor and say that out loud? Revival begins one more time. Revival begins with me. Years ago in the 1800s, there was a man by the name of Gypsy Smith. He was a British evangelist, greatly used by the Lord, was asked this question, how does revival begin? How do you start a revival? And Gypsy Smith said, this is what you do. You go home, you get a piece of chalk, and you go into your prayer closet. 
In that prayer closet, you draw a circle on the ground, you kneel down in that circle, and you beg God to send revival within the chalk line. And when God has answered that prayer, revival begins. You know, I think in our generation, we have a misconception about revival, about what it is and what it's supposed to do. A lot of times we reduce revival to just a meeting. It's a scheduled amount of services that we have somewhere in the date book of our life. And we come to church and we sing songs and we hear a message and, and we say we've been to church and hopefully maybe that's going to happen once or twice throughout the year. And We say we've had revival. Sometimes we equate revival to a change of morality, whether it be a politician that gets into an office or maybe a, a, a new law or some kind of legislation that goes in line with the church. And when that happens, we say that there's some kind of revival in the land. Oftentimes we associate revival with a certain man and his message, an evangelist or a preacher or a missionary that comes in and can hype up things and move us and stir us emotionally and we feel good about life and about God and about church for a little while. But the truth of the matter is you can have a man and you can have a meeting and you can have a message and you can have morality and never truly have an experienced revival. Nehemiah is going to testify that revival basically and simply is this, it's a move of God in me. It's a move of God in me. And that is the story of Nehemiah. That is the book of Nehemiah. That is exactly what takes place in the verses that are before us. Nehemiah is a cupbearer of King Artaxerxes, as we have said, and he's in a very privileged position. He is one that's a trusted ally of the king. And he has certainly experienced the finer things of life, living in a palace. He has all the luxuries that a servant could and would want in that day and time. He understands certain things about living the good life. And in that position of privilege, it also uh, deems him to be in somewhat of a precarious situation because the king's always looking at him. He's tasting the wine and he's eating the bread. And if someone is going to plot against the king, they very well may do it through Nehemiah the cupbearer. And so he's in a place in his life where many eyes are looking upon him. And through this privilege and through this precarious situation, God has Nehemiah right where he wants him. God is going to do a work of providence and sovereignty through and in Nehemiah to usher in revival to the nation of Israel. Of course, we all know that the wall's broken down. We know that the gates are burned and that there are some people in Israel trying to usher in revival, but it's come to naught. And all the ingenuity and all the movements of mankind cannot seem to usher in the move of God. And so somewhere behind the scenes in a palace a long, long time ago, God raises up a man by the name of Nehemiah and he understands something about revival. Revival doesn't start with Artaxerxes. Revival doesn't start in Persia. Revival doesn't start with kings and magistrates and governors. He understood something. Revival starts with me. It starts with me. And I believe you'd agree with me tonight that what we're looking for in our generation, we're looking for political reform. We're looking for cultural revolution. We're looking for religious change, but the truth is you can have all those things and not truly experience revival. 
But the hope of our day is if God's people fall on their face one more time and seek the face of the true and the living God, can I get an amen? We need the Lord. And, and it's so easy for me to point at you and say, you need revival. And it's easy for me to point at Hollywood and say, they need to change. And it's easy for me to look at the White House and say, would to God something happen in this generation? But when it all comes down to the reality of revival, it's not them that needs it. It's not they who need it. It's me, oh Lord, who's in the need of revival. Nehemiah's going to come to terms with that. And he does that. And he begins that through this very fundamental and basic element of revival. And it's through prayer. It's through prayer. You find in verse number 4 and 6, ultimately the prayer of Nehemiah. And how God used this one man and this one prayer to ignite a revival fire in the hearts of Israel. And so tonight I want to speak on that simple thought, revival, begins with me. And tonight as we look at Nehemiah's prayer, we find first of all the cause of his praying, the cause of it. Look at verse 4 again. It says this, And it came to pass when I heard these words. And I want you to stop right there. It came to pass when I heard these words. Now whatever it was that Nehemiah heard is going to cause him to go into prayer. It's going to prompt his heart and ignite something in his heart, drive him into the prayer closet, if you'll have it that way, and seek the face of God. The question then becomes, what was it that Nehemiah heard that caused him to pray this way? If we look at verses 1 through 3, and you can take the time later on to do that, but we know that Hananiah comes from Jerusalem and has a conversation with Nehemiah and he gives him this report of what's happening in the land. Now Nehemiah cared enough to inquire about what was happening. He didn't have to, but he wanted to know. He wanted a survey. He wanted an assessment of what was going on in Jerusalem. And so Hananiah says, Nehemiah, I want you to brace yourself because what I'm about to tell you is going to literally break your heart and break his heart it did. He says, I want to tell you three things about the remnant. I want to tell you about the ruin. And I want you to know about the reproach. The remnant, the ruin, and the reproach. So Hananiah says, this is what's going on. Let me tell you about the remnant. There's about 50,000 people in Jerusalem at this time. And they are part of that deportation that came out of Babylonian captivity. Uh, we know at this time in history that there are some Jews that have come out of Babylon and they're trying their very best under Zerubbabel and Joshua to rebuild the walls. They're trying to restore the gates, but they just can't get, they can't get anywhere. And this is what Hananiah says, you ought to see them, Nehemiah. Oh, they're so discouraged. You wouldn't believe it. They're in great affliction. They have no resources. They're surrounded by Gentile enemies. The foe is pressing upon them. And, and everyone that I've had a conversation with, they seem as though they're wanting to give up. They have no money. They have no allies. They have no resources. They have no joy. They have no contentment. And they have no hope of what they're doing is going to come to pass. You ought to see the remnant of God. You ought to see those people. They walk around with their head down. They, they can't sing the songs of Zion. They're not worshiping. The temple's gone. Uh, it seems as though no one's preaching. It seems as though no one's reading the law of God. Ezra's discouraged. We can't find a prophet in the land. Nehemiah, the remnant, is discouraged. And let me just stop and say this tonight. 
as it relates to our generation. I believe that you would agree with me. We're not Israel, but we are the people of God. And when we look around and see what is going on with the people of God these days, maybe we can see what Nehemiah sees. We see great discouragement in the land. As a pastor and as your pastor for these last couple of years trying to navigate through a very crazy time, one thing that I'm seeing is that people have become depressed and anxiety fills their hearts. And they've allowed the indifferences of our generation to keep them away from church and away from God. Some have even given up on the faith. I read an article the other day that it says post-pandemic problems plaguing pastors, preachers, and pulpiteers in this post-pandemic. And I thought it had to be biblical because it was alliterated. Can I get an amen? And the article was this, is that since the pandemic now has come to somewhat of a minimization that pastors now are trying to deal with the after effects of COVID and everything that it's done to the church and that depression and discouragement and despair has settled into the pulpits as now we're trying just to figure out how to do life again. And I would think all of us to some degree have experienced that. Some of our family members have passed away. Some of you have gotten sick. Some people in our church hasn't been to church in 18 months. Some people's marriages are on the rocks. Their children's nowhere to be found. They say that sobriety is at an all-time low, that there's more drug use and alcohol use in the land these days, and that people are in great despair. All of this, when Nehemiah heard it, it caused him to go to the Lord in prayer. Would you agree to me with me tonight? We've got calls to pray tonight. We've got reason to pray because of the remnant. And then he says, let me tell you something about the ruin. Not just the remnant, not just the people of God, but let me tell you something about the ruin or the place of God. Let me tell you about that wall. That wall is supposed to represent Israel and their defense and their protection. It's not being rebuilt, Nehemiah. You ought to see it. And those gates and the glory therein and the promise of the Messiah coming through it. Well, they're burned down and there's not one that's swinging on the hinges. This is really the rubble report, if you'll have it that way, of Hananiah. I've come to tell you about how bad things are. He must have been a Baptist. Can I get an amen? There's always a Baptist in the crowd to tell you how bad things really are. And he says, let me tell you how bad things have gotten. Because the remnants discouraged and the ruin of the city, you just would not believe it. But I think what really calls Nehemiah to go to the Lord in prayer is when he heard about the reproach. Not just the remnant, the people of God, and the ruin, the place of God, but when he heard about the reproach, the person of God, because all of that was really a testimony against the very name of God, the name that he served, the name that he worshipped. And so tonight as Nehemiah began thinking about that, how Jerusalem was once a shining city on a hill where the glory of David and the glory of Solomon reigned supreme, where the temple was erected and the songs of Zion were heard throughout the land, where the queen of Sheba says, I've not even been told the half of it, and the golden days of Israel, nothing more than a memory that's faded somewhere on the pages of a history book. 
And Nehemiah knew of those glory days and understood how God had led his people out of Egypt land and fed them in the wilderness and provided honey and water out of a rock and fought for their enemies and was the great Jehovah God of Israel. But now all those days are gone and more than a reproach to the land And more than a reproach to the temple and more than a reproach to the people of God, the name of God was being laughed at and scorned. And all of this caused Nehemiah to fall on his face and pray. Tonight, I don't think I would have to sway you for very long to look around and ask you, is there not a cause for us to pray as well? When we see what's going on in our world and in our nation, when we see what's happening in the lives of individuals, I told the church the other week, what about those in our community that that don't know the Lord? What about that, that son and that daughter this very morning that woke up in Houston, Georgia that does not know who his father is and his mother's been on a drunk all day long and nobody will take him to church? What about that marriage that's on the rocks and alcohol has ravaged that family? What about those that are facing a suicide and depression and have thoughts of hopelessness tonight? What about a, a generation that's lost its moral compass? Where we don't know right from wrong. Where we don't know good from evil. Where we have redefined sin. Where we don't even believe that there is a God. Our generation is becoming more atheistic and more agnostic than any generation before us. The secularization of the church is happening right before our eyes. The church is no longer taking the Great Commission seriously, but rather now we have the world indoctrinating the church rather than the church changing the world. Can I ask you, don't we need revival tonight? For the souls of a generation that don't know God, for a temple that needs to be rebuilt, for the name of God that needs to be exalted, for the people of God that is discouraged, for a generation that's lost their souls. Nehemiah looks around and he says, When I heard these words, I wonder tonight if we could just hear the cries. I wonder tonight if we could just sense the desperation and know that the only hope that we have is if we pray. Not only the cause of his prayer, but I'll close tonight with this. The contrition of his prayer. Not only the cause of his praying, but also the contrition of his praying. Look again at verse number 4. It came to pass when I heard these words. There's the cause. That I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. There's the contrition. You see, Nehemiah's prayer was so effective, not only because he had a cause, but he had a contrite spirit when he prayed. As I'm looking at verse number 4, there are four things that Nehemiah did there. He sat down, he wept and mourned, he fasted, and then he prayed. Nehemiah wasn't flippant, he wasn't calloused of what he heard. He cared enough to inquire. He allowed that message to sink down into his heart and then it affected him. It moved him. It compelled him. First thing he did was sat down. That's what I call the heaviness of his contrition. He sat down. 
the weight, the pressure, the burden of it all. He's taking it in. He's processing it. He's trying his best to stand strong, but he falls underneath the weight of it all. And he does what so many of us do. We just sit down. You ever had a phone call and somebody says, I've got to tell you something. Are you sitting down for this? Are you sitting down? It's almost as though Nehemiah says, I, I, I just got to take some time out. I've got to just let all this seek in. The remnant, the ruin, the reproach of it all. And he just sits down under the weight. There's a heaviness. He's not just flippantly going in and out of his prayer closet or flippantly going in and out of church and check that off and said, I did Sunday today. I got in the choir today. I did Sunday school today. I did worship today. No, Nehemiah with great heaviness of heart. He sits, he sits down. He's broken. He is contrite. He has a, a heaviness. Because of the circumstance. In Essex of 1550, there were a group of clergymen that met, that met that talked about the various positions that were acceptable for the church when it came to the matter of prayer. Some said you had to be standing up when you pray. Some said, no, you need to be bowing down when you pray. Others says, no, it's got to be raised hands when you pray. Others says, you've got to be in a prayer closet when you pray. And as they began negotiating and talking about all the various Conditions and positions of the church. There was one man that stood up and said, Beloved, you can stand, you can sit, you can kneel. But the greatest position in prayer is the position of the heart when you pray. And I think the reason why he sat down is because his heart just couldn't stand anymore. And he sat down, the Bible says, that's the heaviness. And then he does something else. He weeps and he mourns. That's the heartbreak. You see this? The heaviness of contrition, the heartbreak of contrition... The heart is moving into his eyes. The heart is moving into his mind. The heart is compelling his emotion and his senses. What's happened to him inwardly now is being expressed outwardly. And he can't help it. He's crying. He's weeping. Visibly, he is upset. Friends and family and heritage. All that's being destroyed right before him. Several years ago, I had a family, a friend of family... Uh, that we was able to pastor and minister with, and we got the phone call that uh, there had been a gas, lane, gas main leak in their home, and the entire house blew up. Thankfully, no one was at home, a family of five, and they lost everything. We got the phone call, and me and some of my family members, we went over there, and it was just the, it was just the parcel of land. And Brother Sexton, there was nothing. There was no house. There was no car. There was no bedroom. There was nothing left. And, and as they're standing there, we just kind of hugged one another, and we sat down on the curb, and we just wept. There was nothing to say. We just sat down on the curb, and we just wept, and we mourned, and we lamented together. And Nehemiah realizes it's not just a house that I lost, it, not just some, but the whole lot of Jerusalem is destroyed. And can I tell you something? If Nehemiah is not moved by what he has heard, then he is either ignorant or indifferent, one of the two. In the church of Jesus Christ, if we don't get our burden back and move by what we are hearing and seeing that's happening in our generation, then we are either indifferent or ignorant as well. May God stir our senses and may we get our tears back and may we weep over a generation that needs a move of God. Can I get an amen? 
He not only sat down, that's the heaviness. He not only wept to mourn, that's the heartbreak. And then he fasted, he hungered. It's what I call the hunger of contrition. This is Nehemiah inwardly seeking the Lord. This is him removing himself from the fleshly tables of mankind and turning to the celestial tables of glory, asking God to feed him with something that this world cannot give. That's what fasting is. How many knows what it's like to go a breakfast or a lunch or a day or even two days without food? And you know how it changes you. You know the hunger that stirs inside of you. I wonder how often we fail to feed this inward man. I wonder, could it be that the church of Jesus Christ in these last days doesn't have the authority and the power that God wants us to have because this kind only go out by prayer and fasting? Fasting is not even a term that we use anymore. It is out of our vocabulary and out of our vernacular. And we only do it when the doctor says you're going to have a colonoscopy tomorrow. But I wonder, I wonder what it would be like if the church of Jesus Christ got hungry for the things of heaven and said, God, unless you feed the soul, I will be hungry today. And then finally tonight in closing, he sat down, that's the heaviness. He wept and mourned, that's the heartbreak. He fasted, that's the hunger. But then he did pray, that's the heralding. He began to cry out to God. And maybe tomorrow night the Lord would help us find out what all Nehemiah said that ushered in revival into his heart. He prayed because he was contrite of spirit. Let me say this tonight. You can determine the sincerity of one's desire for revival by what grieves and upsets them. I hate to admit this. Last week, Rose Sexton, I wrote down a list of things that bother me. That's good therapy, by the way. list of things that bother me. Number one on my list, traffic. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Traffic. I live in Loganville, and Crossroads is in Lawrenceville. We have 52 red lights from my house to church. And I get stopped, wouldn't you know it, at every single one of them. Traffic bothers me. Slow lines, how about that? Slow lines, I hate slow lines, I hate the way. Let's get on with it, let's get down the road. I don't like to be in one place for very long. Some of you younger people will probably agree with this. No internet, doesn't that bother you? No internet. I won't see my kids for three weeks and when the internet goes out, they come downstairs. What's wrong, Daddy? No cell phone service, that bothers me. Some of you old timers would agree with this. High prices and inflation, can I get an amen? Amen. Political infighting and hypocrisy and Fox News and CNN and all the squabbling, it bothers me. And then last on my list, I hope it's okay to say this, last on my list, stupid people. Stupid people bother me. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Somebody said that God sure must love stupid people because he made a lot of them. Can I get a witness? And so, you know, they don't go at our speed. They don't think the way that we do. And we're just thinking, come on now, get with it. You know, it bothers us. And so all these things, all these things grieve us. And then I got really under conviction about the list. I got under conviction about the list because by and large what bothers me are things that are not eternal. It's not that people are dying all around me and going to hell. It's not that the church needs revival. It's, 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 not, 
It's not that we need an awakening in our generation, but by and large, I even hate to confess it, so much of what bothers me are the things and the issues of this world. And so this is what I did. I didn't, I didn't have any chalk with me. And I didn't, I didn't go into a prayer closet per se, but this is what I did the other day. I just got me a, this just got me a little circle. I just made me a little circle. And, and I said, you know, Gypsy Smith gave some good advice. He said, you want to see revival? This is what you do. You, you draw a circle somewhere in your prayer closet and you get in that prayer closet and you bow down and get on your face and you ask God to send revival in the chalk lines and you pray that way until He answers that prayer. And when He finally answers that prayer, then you'll know revival has begun. Tonight I'll give you my title one more time. Revival begins. Say it with me. Let's stand our feet tonight. I want to ask your pastor to come close out the service. Maybe somewhere in your heart tonight you would ask the Lord.
Let's grow together as a church. Communion in the body. Commitment to the Lord. Let's grow together as a body. We'll dismiss us in prayer and we thank you for being here. Make sure you come by and speak to Brother Ken. Father, we thank you again for this good night. Thank you, Lord, for what I believe you're going to do. Father, I pray that you'd continue to bless and strengthen in Jesus' name. Amen.